Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Dean Mays, who I spoke to about a year ago, just before he went in to surgery to have part of his voice box and potentially his voice removed. I wanted to do a follow-up with him now and, uh, spoiler alert, he can speak or at least approximate speaking now, so that's a very good thing for the podcast at least. Otherwise, I might have had to get a translator in or do it in a quieter cafe. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Dean. We talked about all sorts of things, uh, including uh, the allocation of resources in hospitals and uh, the treatment that he received when he was, in this way, disabled and various other exciting things. It was quite a loud cafe. I think I've managed to edit it so it's clean noise. Let me know if there's a problem. Fraser at gmail.com. Thank you, everybody, who's been contributing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash Fraser, and everyone who's upped their pledges to the $5 pledge so that they can get access to the full show of The Resistance. And there's a few people who've come on board just for the month to get access to that, which is great. If you want to do that, you just sign up at Patreon, sign up for the $5 thing, and you can sign off at the end of the month. You can discontinue your contribution I've I've done it like that just to limit the number of people who can have access to the show while I'm still selling it around the place. It's a good show. I really like it. I hope you decide that you want to watch it. Uh, that's about that. That's all I had to do kind of on the admin front. Oh, I'm finishing up in Adelaide now. So if you're in Adelaide, you're unlikely to be able to see my show unless you literally come tonight. But I'll be in Melbourne at 9.30 at the Chinese Museum. Then I'll be in Sydney at the Enmore. Then I'll be in Perth in some place in Perth. And then I will be in Edinburgh for the full month of Edinburgh at 10pm at the Gilded Balloon in the Billiard Room. So that's my, if you want to know where I am, that's where I am. If you want to see my show, if you're in any of those places or have friends in any of those places, uh, come along, send them along. I would love to see you. Uh, that's about it. Thank you everybody who's been tweeting me at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. And uh, thank you, everybody, who's been giving really nice reviews on the iTunes page. That really helps if you can't afford to contribute financially to this show or don't see a reason why you would, then just telling other people about it is an enormous help to me. You're having tea with Alice. I'm going to let you listen to this conversation with Dean Mays. I hope you enjoy it. We're going to start now? Yeah, let's start now. Okay. Do you want to reintroduce yourself to my audience? <laughs> Who are you? What are you drinking? Um, I'm Dean Mays, and I'm drinking a cappuccino at the moment. Um, breaking with con- TCAST convention, I'm, I'm afraid, so I apologise in advance. That's all right. I'm getting very loose on, on that. Gillian drank an orange soda yesterday. Oh, yeah, the San Pellegrino. Scandalised. <laughs> um, so last time we spoke was the night before you went in to have your voice cut out, basically. Yeah, basically. Yeah, that was in May last year. And now you at least sound like you're talking. So do you want to explain that? I am. Um, when I spoke to you last year, I was um, I was facing the very real prospect that I would wouldn't have a voice after that surgery. And as it turned out, for most of last year, um, I didn't. I didn't have a voice at all. Um, and it was a surreal experience um, that was very confronting and I think I went into it expecting the situation that happened 
um, but I didn't really appreciate just how much of an impact it would have. I just sort of kind of went, I don't know, just accepted it almost immediately. So yeah, yeah. I mean, when when you didn't have a voice, did you know that you would get one back or no? No. no. So so what did that? What was that like? Um, it got very old very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, I don't know what I was thinking and thinking that I'd be able to cope with this. Um, in fact, it, you know, it's just... I don't think I sort of appreciated the, the significance of, of not being able to speak. Um, and because I was so sort of pig-headed about getting this issue fixed with my throat... Um, that was more of a focus than what, what the out, you know, what the after effects of that would be. What? So, well, I mean, when we last spoke, it seemed like a pretty urgent matter to get it fixed. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I was having difficulties uh, swallowing. That was the key problem, um, and that was because a nerve in my neck had become, you know, dysfunctional to the point at which my airway was actually collapsing in on itself, mm. and. Uh, because that was doing that, you know, I wasn't getting the protection of um, my throat from swallowing food and, and the like. Um, and so I was essentially aspirating food and fluid into my lungs. Yeah. Um, and a be- in the beginning, it was happening so subtly that I didn't realise um, that it was actually happening. Um, but as time went on and the dysfunction became worse, you know, the, the problems with my swallowing and my speech um, became worse as a result. So, yeah. So how are you talking now? Uh, through a lot of hard work um, and, you know, the human body's, you know, remarkable ability to adapt, you know. So what I have now is essentially half a voice box which is compensated in part because we have these things called false vocal cords up above and they're, they're a pair of muscles that help... Um, innovate the, the the true vocal cords down down below, um, and so essentially what they've done is they've taken over the work of the true vocal cords um, and have allowed me to uh, make a voice that is you know sounds on the surface quite normal but is is precarious at best. You know. So, it, I mean, the way that I sort of articulated it, I'm not sure if this is right, is it like doing a voice? Is it like doing a pretend voice? That's right, yeah. It's like it's like trying to imitate a character or, you know, a, a famous person or something <laughs> like that, you know. There, there is so much thinking that goes into actually speaking. And as I, as I sit here and talk to you right now, you know, the mental process of, of um, speaking is just... It's running at you know a million miles an hour compared to what it was before. It's not, it's not just a simple thing that I do. It's you know it requires a bit of forethought. You know, it's like a a performance of a voice. Yeah, that's it. And so does it tire out more quickly? It does. Yeah, yeah. Um, I find that I have to you know rest a lot and and not and not speak. Um, because what happens is with the, the muscles that I told you that are that are compensating for my true vocal cords, they tire out really quickly, 
and um, they tend to, to go into spasm. Oh, wow. So um, there's been a few times where I've been, you know, sitting at a dinner table and, you know, just quite happily engaging with people and all of a sudden I'll start looking like I'm choking, you know. Oh, wow. So does it feel like you're choking? Or yeah, that's yeah, it does because those, those muscles begin to flutter and, you know, misbehave in such a way that... Um, <laughs> I end up looking like I'm about to, you know, erupt. So, yeah, and it's, it's no quite fun. scary for the people around me. So, so I imagine that would make you feel very much uh, conscious of your voice at all times. Oh, yeah. Conscious of the amount that you're talking, yeah. what's important to say and what isn't. Yeah, yeah. I would yeah. resent small talk if I were you. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't like small talk as much as I perhaps used to. And I avoid it at all costs. So That's really interesting. Yeah. And has that changed your relationships with people? Um, yeah. Yeah, it has. Um, both in the positive and the negative. Um, I tend to not waste speech now or not waste um, thoughts and ideas that I don't think are relevant to, you know, conversation or you know just that I think are wasteful to conversation so so rather you've become one of those kind of quiet men yeah, yeah. and that's not a bad thing no it's an, it's an interesting thing no because it's something that you would think of as, as part of somebody's character rather than part of their physiology yes yeah how much so they speak or how much they choose to speak yeah and for the the uninitiated to this or you know even to the people that knew what I was having done I think they found it a, a bit disconcerting when they interacted with me afterwards because you know when I began to speak again which was you know a good six months after the surgery last year they couldn't quite get their head around the fact that I wouldn't speak at any great length so you know and that I wasn't the kind of engaging person that they kind of knew me to be beforehand. So, you know. So do you think you're less charming now then? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's changed the way that you move through the world? Has it changed your ideas about communication? Oh, definitely. Yeah, on both counts. Um, at in the beginning, I was consciously avoiding people and avoiding social situations purely because I couldn't engage in those situations but um, as time went on it just became a natural thing to be more reserved in social situations um, you know as, out of a, a feeling of self-preservation um, and to preserve what I've got left mm -hmm. um, and but in terms of communication um, there's that benefit of actually being a much more reflective person than what I had been perhaps previously yeah so having to think before you speak yeah yeah and that's probably that that's that's the good thing about uh, about this is that um I think I've become a more considerate person in a lot of ways. So that's really interesting. Again, those one of those 
I'm really interested in, at the moment in the difference in a lot of, I think a lot of the things that we think of as part of your personality are dictated by things like physiology, hormones, uh, you know, things that we don't have control over, things, you know, yeah. things that upset you, things that you care about yep. are less part of your personality than you would necessarily want them to be. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that's an interesting thing. Yeah. So, um, and I think that, you know, in this, this day and this time that we're in, where, you know, everybody's so quick to put forward an opinion on something, um, being able to, and, you know, in a lot of ways being forced to, to, to sit back and, and not immediately jump to an opinion it's been great because it allows more time to reflect. And I think that I've definitely become a more reflective person anyway. Mm. Um, but that's actually a trait that I consciously pursue now in the way that I sort of walk through life is to be more reflective. You know. Can you think of an example of a time where you would have behaved in a certain way or you would have spoken but didn't? It doesn't matter if you can't. It's just... Um, I, I think I used to be very forthright in my, in my opinions. Um, mm -hmm. And I tended to probably jump in without considering all sides of a particular argument. Um, but I think that's probably the nature of being a younger person and being more exuberant and more you know willing to put one you know put yourself out there but um, these days I'm sort of wanting to be quieter and more reflective as I said before because I don't like being as bolshy as I as I was before so yeah I mean that that is an interesting shift and again you don't know how much that's due to your voice and how much that's due to sort of becoming a more mature person yeah so but i guess you would never feel the urge to play devil's advocate oh i don't know about that <laughs> <laughs> um that's interesting because i think that Whereas once I was sort of more straight down the line on a lot of issues, um, you know, by being considerate of of other uh, points of view, I actually think that I like to step towards the devil's advocate a lot more. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. That's counterintuitive. So you're you're more you you spend more time thinking while somebody else is talking. Yeah, yeah. And rather than, yeah. I'd go. Well, have you thought about it this way? Because you've yeah. had. And see, so, um, I actually like to think that part of that's your fault, <laughs> because you have this podcast, you see. And um, during the downtime that I had last year, you know, there was there was your podcast, and you'd discussed other podcasts that um, that you'd like to listen to mm. that fit very much within that 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 long-form conversational vein. Yeah. And so I found myself listening to a lot more of those and just being really happy b 
being a kind of a observer of those conversations that challenged a lot of what I used to think about, you know, and used to believe. Um, and that's been a real... I don't know if revelation is a is too strong a word, but... Evolution, maybe? Uh, evolution, yeah. Yeah, I like to be... So, like, which podcast? Like Sam Harris? Like Sam Harris, of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've listened to a lot of Sam Harris. Um, and there's a, a there's another one called The Hidden Brain on yeah. NPR. Yeah. Um, and they're great because even though they're long form, they come in sort of half-hour episodes and uh, they're just so considerate, you know? Yeah. Well, that's... I'm glad that I have uh, been able to help in some way. Yeah, yeah. How was work when you were... I mean, as a nurse... Surely you would have to speak. Yeah, um, I was saying to you off air that they were really supportive and they have been really supportive throughout this whole thing, which is almost surprising because nurses traditionally, um, you know, they have the potential to kind of eat their own a bit. Um, but I'm really fortunate to be in a workplace that uh, is small and therefore, by its nature of being small, very supportive. And I do remember that um, when I came back, I was only speaking maybe one or two words, um, you know, very brief sort of yes-no answers to a lot of things. And um, I remember they actually paired me up with a patient who had just had major brain surgery. And so she was... Uh, robbed of her voice and her speech as well and um, you know you might think that sort of really kind of a strange thing to do to pair the mute nurse up with a mute patient but um, it's funny how we managed to strike up a, a non-verbal conversation yeah I, it's that's really interesting I um, I remember when I was in uh, Damascus and I was walking around and a guy gestured me into his shop come into my shop come into my shop and I I went into his shop and he didn't speak a word of English I don't speak Arabic and so we had but we managed to talk for 90 minutes in just sign you know he gave me very strong tea and very rough cigarettes I don't smoke but again there's that thing of like well I've got to kind of show you goodwill and so I was sort of bum puffing these terrible cigarettes and having this conversation and you know finding out that he had you know he'd, he'd sort of gesture towards boobs that he had this many daughters and this many like curly moustache sons and one of his sons was married and and had two kids of his own and it, just this whole very extensive conversation and then him showing me all of the stuff in his in his shop and sort of explaining where it had come from and again just with a lot of goodwill it's amazing how much communication you can have oh it is and i mean for me as a nurse um non-verbal communication is just as important in the caring setting as verbal communication yeah. um, particularly when you're trying to you know, interpret a lot of non-verbal cues from a patient that can't speak or, you know, um, or is on a ventilator, which, you know, for a long time this patient was. Mm. Um, you know, being able to pick up on those non-verbal signs is just so important, you know. 
There's, this is slightly tangential, but I think yeah. it might be relevant. There's a show in the UK called The Undateables, which could be incredibly sort of prurient and titillating and yep. badly done, but it's it's actually done very well. It's it show, it's like a dating show, but it shows people who are either sort of neuroatypical or have other disabilities mm. uh, being paired up either with neurotypical people or other you know, other people who have various sort of arrays of disabilities or diseases or genetic issues. Yep. And it's really interestingly done. It's really well done to sort of show the essential humanity of the need for love. Yeah. But one of the dates that just kind of blew my mind, I had a, like an, an epiphany or a moment. One of the dates was two people and they were talking and the way that they were speaking to one another, you know, he said shall I go get you a nice hot chocolate? And he'd say her name in almost every sentence. And she would say, well, you know, thank you. That's very kind of you. And I was like, why are they being so patronizing to one another? And then I realized that's how people speak to them. Mm. That's the only register okay. of conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they kind of mimic that well, in their own... Well, of course, that's the way that people talk, yeah. obviously, in, yeah, their, sure. in their experience. And particularly people who care about you or are invested in you in any way, they speak in that very... Yeah, precise manner. Precise and, yeah, again, slightly over-enthusiastic, slightly, slightly too kind yeah. for a normal level of conversation. It just... I don't think I'd really considered the impact that having people talk like that would have mm. on your own idea of how people interact. Yep, yep. Uh, we have our food now, so we should take a break and we'll yep. come back in a second. <laughs> All right, so we're back. I just had some avocado on toast and you had a focaccia. I did. It was lovely. So we're fortified. Yes. Moving into the next area of the podcast. Yeah. Uh, what were you talking about before? Uh, my early interactions with patients and yeah, uh, yeah. getting back on the horse as such, as a, at least as a, a nurse that couldn't speak. So, and yeah. has it changed your relationship with your family? Yeah, yeah, it has. Um, not that I'd sort of condone yelling at children, but I can't yell at children. So, and so my my children can. Um, I think they think they can get away with a lot more. Uh, interesting. I need you to meet my dad. He never he never shouted at us, but he could very very uh, powerfully communicate disapproval. So maybe it's you need to learn some of his techniques. I think that's very noble. I like <laughs> I like that, and that's be. Something I'd actually like to achieve as a as a father, as a parent. So, one of the loveliest things that occurred um, out of all this, and uh, I want to say that it was almost by accident, but it but it wasn't. Um, I, with both my children, my my boy and uh, Xavier and my daughter Lucy, we um, you know, got into the habit of reading to them every night. Mm. You know, reading a story. And, um, of course, in the immediate aftermath of my surgery, I couldn't do that anymore. Um, and so, uh, whereas Xavier took it upon himself to, to read to himself, 
um, Lucy and I worked out a way where I'd basically get her to read to me. And so in a very short space of time, her reading fluency just went through the roof um, as a result of, of, of all this. And, um, and that was a really lovely thing that brought us clo- or closer than what we, together than what we are, you know. Um, I mean, lovely. we're already close anyway, but... Did she get to choose the books or did you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I let her choose her books. What um, kind of books does she read to you? Oh, she's very much a fan of Angelina Ballerina and, you know, all those really <laughs> lovely ABC characters. Um, so there's ne- nothing ever, you know, too gaudy or, you know, schmaltzy. So. I reckon try the... Um Trier on James Thurber, The Thirteen Clocks. Okay. It's a very good book. It's yeah. a really delightful. Um, it's almost it's almost poetry the way it's written. It's it's written to be read aloud. It's very sort of rhythmic and and epic and Fantastic. funny. It's yeah. very funny, but it's not you know, it's not violent or sexual or no, anything no, that's inappropriate no. for children. Yeah. But there's a very yeah, I, I would highly recommend that as a book to yeah. read. Also, The Phantom Tollbooth, if she's up to that. Okay. Which is a, a book sort of about maths. Yep, yep. Um, actually, I should have a read of that, given that I'm trying to deal with quantum physics in my show. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed that part of your show last night, actually. So. I mean, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no quantum physicist, but then... Uh. Beyond watching um, Brian Cox, I'm not either. So There's this an amazing uh, statistic that's come out recently that I think it's five out of six, and this is probably a misquote. There's a real number, but it's one of those startlingly high numbers um, of studies cannot be replicated. Okay. The vast majority of them, I think, are in uh, psychology and social sciences. The right. So a lot of the things that we believe about human interaction, or that are scientifically based, and I'm a, I, I love a like a, one of those studies where it's like if you give someone a warm coffee, then they like you more. That you know, rather than a cold, all of that stuff. Yep. The vast majority of it is absolute bullshit. There's a severe crisis of replicability in the scientific community at the moment. Yeah. To the point where I mean, this is like, this is the GFC for science like it is an absolute bubble of lies peer review is has become nonsensical Mm. i don't know how they're going to fix it and it's that again that really interesting thing where as sort of i guess left-wing educated um non-religious people we tend to go, oh, well, science, you believe science over religion. Yeah, sure. I mean, statistically, it looks like they're about even at the moment. Yeah. Like, in terms of what they have in them that you can believe and what they have in them that is utter bullshit. Yeah. Science and religion are punching it about the same way, which is devastating. <laughs> exactly. Like, the, I mean, which is not to say that, you know, you should just believe any anything because you believe it, but there's a lot of people who just believe in science because they believe in science. Yeah. Yep. And it's uh, again, this is really devastating for things like climate science, where you know those studies are replicable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but once you cast doubt on on a an area like that, 
It's like the whole area is suspect, particularly in the softer sciences. The humanities and... Um, the humanities end of the science spectrum, yeah, yeah social sure. science, psychology. Yep, yep. Um, neuropsych, all of that stuff. I feel really sad now. Yeah, well, I mean, what's the solution? I mean, maybe it's that any scientist who wants to do a PhD has to spend a year just replicating other people's studies first? Possibly. I mean, if the... If the if the the problem is, uh, you know, the inability to replicate, then by extension you would want to be looking at ways of replicating or looking for ways of trying to replicate. I think the problem is not that it can't be replicated. I think the problem slightly is one step before that, which is that the incentives are misaligned. Yes. So the incentives to get something into a journal, something that's interesting, something that's going to get some buzz, something that's going to get you funding in an interesting area, all of those incentives are aligned to encourage or, well, not necessarily fabrication, but certainly encourage hopeful thinking about your results and, and encourage sort of some... Yeah, again, not necessarily dishonesty because people are infinitely capable of fooling themselves, mm. but maybe misplaced enthusiasm yeah. that isn't necessarily part of the scientific mindset. Yep, yep. Um, yeah. But yeah. Money has a lot to do with that too. So. Well, I mean, again, maybe it's two steps back from that. Maybe the problem is that we don't pay our academics well enough. No. And that, that you know, if you're, if you're in a position where you're fighting for tenure or you're you know you've got great job insecurity at the moment lecturers particularly in america but also in australia i have a friend who's who works with the university they don't find out till maybe a month before term maybe six weeks before term starts whether they have a job at all for the next three months you know and then it's three months maybe six months and then they are back in this state of complete uncertainty Mm. and that's very damaging on the morale, you know, at an individual level and and the morale within the community of academics that are, you know, trying with good intentions to advance humanity and humanity's causes in those well, areas too. Yeah, it's incredibly uh, anxiety-inducing yeah. for a class of people who are, whose job is to be in their own heads. Yeah. You know, you've already got you've got people who have got the natural inclination to be in their heads. Mm. That's been cultivated through this kind of education system. Yep. And they're told that their job is to think, and then they're told that their job is insecure. Mm. Like that's a very toxic mix, yeah. I think. And yep. I think it's happening in more and more industries around the world. Mm. The liquid workforce, which is good if you're the one who wants to drink the liquid, and not so good if you are the liquid. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Do they have that in nursing as well? Um, nursing's one of those professions that's... Uh, I want to say that it's quite adaptable. Um, well, everyone has bodies all over the world. Yeah, that's it. And I mean, look, people are always going to be sick. There's always going to be a need for, you know, health management, um, harm minimisation, um, and I think that at the outset, when I was considering career choices, you know, um, nursing seemed to be the most responsible thing to pursue. Um, 
and I'm not saying that was my only reason for pursuing nursing initially, but um, yeah, it was a solid career, and I, you know, the old adage that you're always going to have a job in nursing, you yeah. know, that's it's very much true, and I like to think of myself that I've always remained nimble, you know, in the profession by not sort of sticking to one area, sort of moving around different areas, you know, to broaden my skills base and. Well, you were saying just before that you were willing to do stuff that other nurses weren't willing to do. That's right, yeah, yeah. I was uh, spent a number of years doing neonatal intensive care. Um, Eesh. <laughs> which is, yeah, which is an area of nursing that, uh, that not a lot of people feel comfortable in because, you know, your patients are so small. Um, and look, it scared me to begin with, you know. Um, having to sort of handle these coke bottle babies as I like to call them you know tiny 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 babies tiny you know translucent skin and oh god you know little hands that you could see the bones through their fingers you know Um, I mean I imagine you wouldn't be able to do that for very long I probably did it for longer than say the average nurse would I know there's there's nurses that are absolutely dedicated to that area of nursing but um and have done it for a long time but you know i burnt out um eventually how did you recognize that you had burned out um there were some cases where i felt really uncomfortable you know with the decisions that had been made you know, um, I remember one particular child that had been received into the unit from the birthing suite that had been born at 23 weeks, which is, you know, three weeks beyond viability. Um, and the, the, the task of keeping that baby alive... Um, and at least salvaging something out of the situation, which was really dire, was really taxing mentally, you know. I mean, at how, how much would that, if that baby grew to adulthood, how much would it have in terms of development? Well, I mean, the biggest, the biggest hurdle for children of prematurity um, is lung function, you know, because at that, at that stage... You know, that sort of 20 to 30 week period, their lungs are so underdeveloped because they don't have the, the need to respire as you and I respire. We, you know, we breathe in and out, you know, that will, they're getting all their needs for respiration through the umbilical cord. So th- they just basically don't have lungs. Um, and additionally, their brains, their, their, their heads and their brains are really fragile because, you know, these babies skulls aren't aren't formed in the same way that yours and mine are you know that takes time and so they they're at much higher risk of uh, of uh, bleeding into the brain um, and that can be hastened by you know something as simple as oxygen delivery because oxygen is actually considered a toxic gas you know and so if you give if you give a patient too much oxygen, 
that's going to cause damage to the blood vessels, um, particularly around you know the head and the face, um, which can lead to you know catastrophic bleeding into the brain as well. So, God. So, and I saw a lot of that, and you see the the damage that it causes. Mm. Um, and the, de- the decisions that are made, you know, to preserve life uh, at the expense of quality of life. And you do start to question, wh- you know, whether you should be doing this or not, you know. Yeah, well, that's a, yeah, that would be a sort of a terrifying brain space to find yourself in going from looking after these very, very delicate babies, which is sort of an unequivocal good. Yeah. You know these these defenseless little people, and then after a while, starting to wonder if what you're doing is good. Yeah. I think that would be really and, hard. And, f- and for me, coming from coming from a ostensibly Church of England slash Anglican background, where you know preservation of life is considered paramount. Paramount. You know, finding yourself in a headspace where you're questioning that is really confronting, you know. Yeah, I mean, certainly to your own moral, your moral sense of what's right and what's wrong. That's it. So, which is something I'm very interested in yeah. at the moment. And I mean, even, even though, um, you know, I don't profess to be, you know, a practicing Christian or anything like that now. I mean, my own moral code still is influenced by... Of course. You know, that upbringing. So, you know... I cherish life as much as the next person, but I'm also pragmatic enough to, to realise that when when things are dire, they are really dire, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Did it ever slip into sort of economic thinking for you in terms of the amount of resources that were being... I know that's a very harsh thing to consider, but... Oh, no. That's, uh, that's a conversation that, that is often had in health um, and again it's you know it's an unspoken thing but you know, pragmatism sort of exists in really weird places sometimes mm. you know um, and it's harsh it's really harsh to to even consider that but you know well but you, I mean it's if you want to sort of depersonalise it slightly, you consider it as a political issue, which is that uh, the government gives a limited amount of money to healthcare. Yep, yep. And so there's a, a triage aspect to care. Yeah, that's it. Which means that you can't look after everybody, or you can look after everybody, but not as well as you would like to. Yep. There have to be limits to the amount of care. I remember wrestling with this with mum when she was uh, not well enough to be at home alone yeah and uh, dad was overseas and the doctor just kept trying to release her <laughs> you know to, oh we'll, we'll get her out tomorrow and I'd say no I, I you know and I just I would just lie through my teeth I'd say I'm working full time I'm not going to be there the yeah. house is full of knives <laughs> like I mean but our floor was uneven there's a set of stairs that I mean Marble bathrooms, glass yep. showers, yep. you know. All these things. At, at mm. one time, mum fell over and couldn't get up until dad got home. You know, 
when things started to get bad before they were at that level sort of mm. consistently. So I just... And he, this doctor, I'm sure he had many, many, many pressures on him to, to make beds available. I'm sure there were many people with arguably greater needs than my mum who were coming in. But I, I just... He was really bullying me mm. as a, you know, a young girl, kind yep. of really putting the hard... Oh, yep, yep. Well, so tomorrow she'll be out if you want to come pick her up at 11. I was like, nah, I'm sorry, not in Sydney. Like, I just That's lie and lie and lie yeah, yeah. until Dad came home. Because, uh, among other things, I, I couldn't lift her. Mm. Or not for very long. So... Yeah. And so... You for a doctor, you know, there, there's a there's a limited scope for what they can they can know in terms of what's out there in the community. Mm. You know, they're they're focused on one aspect of the hospital stay. You know, nurses have uh, are tapped into resources that could have helped you and your mum outside. Yeah, well, I mean, eventually we did sort of set up so that mum could be at home, but it took a lot of it you took know, a long different time. resources yeah, and you yeah. needed to call these people and those people and get this care and that care. And, and these were the times when I could be there and dad and so on yeah. and so forth. I remember having this discussion with a friend of mine. Uh, we, we had these sort of very wanky sort of meetups in Sydney at one point of people from all different areas of life, friends who'd all, you know, gone to school together but were now in very different areas and just sitting down and seeing if we could think of cool things that we could do with all of our brain power yep. and different sets of expertise. And I remember talking to one who was a young doctor who said, you know, it's really upsetting that people, you know, they let their parents just go into the hospital and then they you know, they'll only visit them like once a day or, you know, even less than that. Or they just want to, they just want to get rid of their parents and they just don't want to look after them and they want, they want, they expect us to do that kind of care every, and it's yeah. everyday basic care. And that's the job of families. Mm. And I said, well, no, traditionally that's the job of women. Like traditionally that is the job of women yep. and now... You as a doctor, as a female doctor, want to be allowed to work and have a job and pursue your life. Yep. Uh, I mean, are you suggesting that a better course of action for society would be for, you know, half the population, whether it's women or men, if we're going to get past gender here, that half the population should stay at home and look after their ageing parents? Yep. Because it's, it has to be done. It's a certain amount of man hours and manpower and uh, I mean if you're looking at it in a really brutal kind of financial sense it is better for trained people with economies of scale to be looking after if you think of us as a society rather than a group of loosely affiliated families yes like uh, part of the progress of civilization has been moving away from the family and towards broader societal mm. responsibility. I mean, this is one of the things that conservatives and republicans and you know, capital L liberals have been arguing against for many, many, many years. Yes. Yeah. 
and I can understand why because there is a beauty about that idea of looking after your family of of having you know families look after each other but the reality is then someone has to give up their job yep yeah and see the the complexity of of healthcare now you know from from a, a care point of view from a pharmacological point of view from a you know medical diagnosis point of view just simply makes it impossible for families to provide 100% care 100% of the time because you know like you know not every member of the family is going to be well versed in managing medications you know um, not every member of the family is going to be well versed in identifying symptoms indicating a you know deterioration in their loved one's condition you know mm. um, when we're not experts not everyone's an expert no one's an expert yeah you know so you know, there's that there's that old adage that it takes a community to raise a child. Well, it takes a community to care for elderly people as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that interesting thing. I think up until I went to university in England, I would have agreed with her that you know your job was to look after your family above other things. Yeah. And that's what I said to her. I said, would it have been better for me not to go to Cambridge. Is that... I is mean, that that's the choice. Is that an acceptable choice, yeah. What, what's the correct thing? Mm. And then should it be me or should it be Henry? One of us can't go. Yeah, yeah. Or should Dad give up his job? In which case, where's our family's money coming from? Yeah. yeah. And, and there's the other factor, you know, hard... Hard, hard economics um, of care comes into play where you know families often simply can't afford to deliver the kind of um, care that uh, is required because yeah. it costs a lot of money. So, yeah, yeah, it does. And then again, purely economically, the economies of scale of having resources available, things like those special beds and. Which costs an absolute mozza, yeah. by the way. Railings, if someone has balance issues, those kind of bathrooms which have soft edges. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so wow. I think it's. Uh, I think that uh, shrill whistle of a child might indicate the end of this podcast. Yeah, sure. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to say? Where can people find you online? Um, so I have a website, which is uh, all the W's, Dean from Australia.com. Um, so as we said before, I'm also a writer as well as a nurse. Um, and That's I've... Very good novels. I published novels, and uh, during the course of last year, I, I actually lost my love of writing for a, for a period of time because I was so sort of focused on my throat. That's interesting because yeah. I w- would have thought it might have gone the other way. Not being able to speak would make you want to write more. But I would have thought so as well. But um, this became more consuming. Mm. So, and it's only very recently that I've. Uh, tapped back into that you know love of expression and you know um, I think I'm in a place now where I'm sort of happy enough having done all the therapy that I've done on my voice that I'm happy with the balance that I've got between being able to speak in a limited capacity being able to think a lot 
and being happy enough to create. So That's nice. Yeah, happy yeah. enough to create. Yeah. I will end on that. Thanks for having tea with me. Oh, thank you.